1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of fight back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The price of gas these days is shocking for most of us. Certainly, it's record breaking at about $1.45 a liter for regular fuel. Just over a week ago, the average price was just under $1.37, and a year ago, it was $1.02. It's because of a spike in oil prices, which usually is good news for the Canadian economy, but not this time. Libby was joined on Wednesday by Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, who explained what's happening.
2: Well, the world demand for oil is outstripping its supply. Uh, that's really in a word. And uh, although it seems bad here in Canada, we've now broken new records, as I explained uh, last week uh, here on the station, uh, that we would be uh, breaking those records on Thursday, Um, we're likely to continue to see upward pressure on prices, although it's not as bad as what we're seeing in Europe, what we're seeing in Asia, what we're seeing in South America, where it's not just a combination of uh, cooler weather, less wind, not being able to produce solar energy and, uh, you know, uh, less uh, sunlight. It's really uh, about. Uh, no one really expected demand to come back like this. A little bit like housing prices here in Toronto. No one expected a pandemic to create a frenzy of buying, the likes of which we have uh, uh, rarely seen, uh, if if not at all. So, the world is playing catch up. Unfortunately, uh, oil producers, and I'm not just talking OPEC because they have their own clients, but most importantly, us here in Canada and in the United States. We're not producing as much oil, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, many companies are not in the business of losing money as they did last year. Other companies simply can't get financing. Um, it's not lost on people like myself who've been pointing this out for some time that in our our desire to move, go green, we also have you know people like Mark Carney going out and saying, "Hey, stop investing in, uh, in in fossil fuels." We have the International Energy Agency. Uh, going out and saying stop building and, and investing in fossil fuels only to realize that, you know, maybe that's a bit of a longer term situation. But what's happened now, Libby, is that we're painting, we've painted ourselves into a corner. We've not made that transition. We're not going to for the next 10, 15 or 20 years. Uh, but it's almost as if they're saying, well, we can just turn off a switch or, you know, all buy electric vehicles at 80, $100,000 and everything will just take care of itself. So what we have now is a shortage of supply at a time in which demand is peaking and for which no one really has any uh, quick uh, fixes in terms of supplying the market.
3: What's the relationship of our dollar to all this?
2: You mentioned this in the intro, and I'm very happy you did. In the past, when Canada sold lots of oil at high prices, so in 2008, 2014, when we saw oil prices spike back to 110 120 $140 a barrel, the Canadian dollar actually kept pace with the U.S. greenback. That's critical everybody has to know that any commodity that we use in this country, and it doesn't really matter what it is, is priced in U.S. dollars, whether it's made here or not. And what's really critical with all that is that in the past, we've had the advantage of being the petrodollar. We sold 4 million barrels of oil every day to the United States. The value of our currency went up. People invested more oil and more natural gas and more uh, pipelines. Um, That hasn't happened in a long time. We have discouraged the building of pipelines. We've taken it and lost about $150 billion in net revenues. And what that's done is it's depreciated uh, the effect of the Canadian dollar. So it takes 125 pennies thereabout to buy a U.S. dollar. Last time we saw prices at record levels, uh, or even $80 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate, that's our North American benchmark, Uh, you know, the Canadian dollar was within 5 cents of the value. What does that mean? Well, for gasoline, it's next to 13 cents a liter. So the Canadian dollar uh, many it when you know it strengthens, uh, but in this case, it remains weak. And uh, although some people can say we can, we can sell more gasoline, uh, we can sell more widgets, we can do all sorts of things. The fact is, uh, it really destroys the purchasing power of every Canadian, and it's not just for gasoline; it's for food. It's for the clothing that we buy, anything we buy, everything we have is in U.S. dollars, whether we like it or not.
3: You mentioned the cost of food, and of course, a big part of that is transportation. And we've been talking about that a lot here. And I think that the overall number is food inflation should be about 5%. But, you know, when you go to the grocery store and pick up certain items, it certainly seems higher than that. Yeah,
2: staples are way higher. I shop with my wife all the time, and uh, you know it, I'm surprised when she comes back. You know, with the family and we're we're spending perhaps this time versus last year an extra sixty or seventy dollars a week more than we did uh, uh, pre-pandemic. Um, this is just a symptom of the bigger problem, the larger problem. There's a whole host of reasons for that. It's not just about energy prices, but the fact that energy hasn't even started to raise. Uh, you know, it's 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 ugly head. Uh, we're just at the beginning of what could be an energy supercycle, what some people think is an energy crisis, and I agree with them. Um, it's going to make a real mess of things, and I, I you know, I think the federal government, along with uh, global governments, are going to have to get a little bit more serious about the idea that they can make this quick transition uh, to fossil away from fossil fuels because it's uh, it's indispensable to uh, providing global stability.
1: Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now to another factor in the high cost of driving, auto insurance. The Ontario New Democrats say the industry is gouging drivers. During the first year of the pandemic, traffic volumes dropped to all-time lows, So did insurance claims to a record low of just 50% of premiums, according to the General Insurance Statistical Agency. This added up to staggering profits of more than $3.6 billion in 2020. Word from the Insurance Bureau of Canada, Ontario drivers were given $1.3 billion in rate reductions. But that was after the Ford PCs at Queen's Park publicly rebuked insurance companies. At the same time, premiums actually went up by a total of $200 million. Joining Libby on Wednesday to discuss Terence Kernahan, the NDP consumer protection critic.
4: In Ontario, we pay some of the highest car insurance rates across Canada, and it's infuriating that through the pandemic, when people are doing the right thing and staying home and staying safe and limiting themselves to, to essential travel only, that premiums were increased. It, it, it flies in the face of what was actually happening. You know, the cost of living is is increasing dramatically in Ontario. You know, as you were just talking with Dan McTague, is that, you know, gas prices were hitting record highs over the weekend. You know, last year, only after public outcry and after being shamed by the opposition and the press, uh, Ford said he would... And the government, too. <laughs> Give oh, him a little <laughs> credit. Oh, yes. But... Uh, you know, he said he would reduce premiums uh, after you know, being shamed, but he failed to do it. They, they amended auto regulations uh, to allow insurers to provide rebates, but that didn't mean that those rebates actually got to people. You know, Ford's been letting you know these greedy insurance companies gouge Ontarians.
3: Well, I remember with those rebates, there were a lot of conditions attached. Oh yes, and, and you had to be sure that you weren't going to drive, you know, one kilometer more than <laughs> you said, and and if you did, and anything happened, they weren't going to cover
4: you. Absolutely, and you know, these aren't uh, these aren't decisions that you can easily make and predict the future. I mean. You know, if you have to go and, you know, take essential trips to to get groceries or what if your family has an emergency? You know, you don't want to run the risk of, you know, know, ruining your coverage as a result. You know, these are stipulations that were placed on there that were totally unfair and put people in a a real predicament.
3: That's a whole other issue is postal code uh, rates. Uh, uh, Terrence, uh, what do you have to say about that?
4: Absolutely. You know, where you live should not allow uh, insurance companies to gouge you even further. It's a disgrace that, you know, in these areas, you are absolutely uh, under under the thumb of the insurance company. And, you know, the NDP introduced legislation in 2012 uh, to end the postal code discrimination, which is what insurance companies engage in. And we introduced it again in 2018. Now, what was very curious was that this conservative government uh, introduced legislation that they claimed would do the same thing, but it was the devil's in the details, as it always is. And they, in the legislation, they indicated that postal code would not be a primary factor for uh, determining your rate. However, it it didn't uh, exclude it entirely from their, their calculus. So as a result, people are still paying outrageous fees in certain postal codes in the GTA. And it's simply and utterly wrong. I mean, you know, if it weren't bad enough that during a time when, you know, people are not on the roads, they're not getting in accidents, they're paying more, that the people in Brampton and other uh, GTA postal codes are paying astronomically higher fees just so that insurance companies can pad their pockets.
3: Okay. Uh, Terrence, we are uh, out of time on this. 20 seconds.
4: What would you like to leave us with? Well, you know, we need to end postal code discrimination and we need to make sure that the insurance companies are regulated properly to make sure that that they are only posting a certain level of profit. There's nothing inherently wrong with profit, but when Ontarians are paying for the profits that insurance companies make across Canada, I, for one, think that that is wrong. I think that people deserve a fair marketplace.
3: Yep. If you're supposed to get 5% and you end up with 27.6% in profit...
4: Hmm. It was a good year. You stand up for consumers for once.
1: Terrence Kernahan, the NDP consumer protection critic. Despite Fightback's efforts to get comment from the insurance industry, no one would come on the show during this segment on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, it's not just the added costs contributing to driver frustration. We'll talk traffic congestion next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. According to City of Toronto data,
1: traffic flow is up to 85% of pre-pandemic levels, causing congestion that in some cases seems worse than ever. There is also a lot of never-ending construction and patios still taking up lanes on many streets. We learned this past week speeding is also a factor on many city streets as captured by 50 traffic enforcement devices during July and August. And on Tuesday, there was a deadly occurrence as a speeding driver killed a 69-year-old woman and a 71-year-old man as they were sitting in traffic in their car near High Park on Parkside Drive. Dr. Bahur Abdulhai is a professor at the University of Toronto and the director of Toronto Intelligent Transportation System Center and Testbed. Tyranny Anderson is co-founder of Safe Parkside. And police constable Sean Shapiro is with Toronto Police Traffic Safety Programs. They joined Libby and spoke first about the deadly crash on
5: Parkside. So it was a BMW. Um, I don't have a, a, a speed that I can share. It is an active investigation uh, by members of the Toronto Police Service. Uh, but uh, it, it was a high rate of speed when it uh, came into contact colliding with uh, a Toyota that was uh, looked like it was stopped.
3: It would have been a high rate of speed to cause, the, what, were five vehicles involved there?
5: The original vehicle uh, struck the, uh, uh, the vehicle that had the two uh, two persons that are unfortunately deceased at this time. Uh, the uh, Uh, that then created a, a chain of events where the vehicle proceeded to hit other vehicles and other people were injured.
3: Uh, um, This kind of a crash, I mean, what do you you have to say about it? There's a lot of, you know, am I dreaming? There seems to be a lot of congestion. There are a lot of areas where there's a a backup of a lot of people waiting to make a turn or to go down a street. And then other people get kind of impatient.
5: Well, there's never an excuse, regardless of congestion, for for speeding uh, or, or driving even at a... Uh, a rate well above standing traffic, you know safety has always got to be uh, the focus of every driver uh, driver's responsibility.
3: Let's bring in tyranny, Anderson. Tyranny, uh, you've been involved in trying to make this particular intersection safer for quite a while. Yeah, we have seen
2: many drivers going well above the speed limit. Um, it's a fifty kilometer an hour street, Parkside. It's also a community safety zone. Um, And I would say, you know, it's harder to find a driver that's not going 80 or 90 on this street than it is to find one that is actually going 50. Um, It's habitual behavior that people have gotten used to. Um, People are rushing, etc. But what happens is someone stopped. I I, I think I have my facts right. I think they were actually turning. They weren't stuck in congestion. They were turning. um, And the driver was just going too fast possibly swerving, uh, and it's amazing how quickly something like this can happen.
3: Dr. Abdul-Hai, uh, in your opinion, how much of this is bad behavior? How much of it is bad design?
6: Well, it's, uh, it's both, actually. I want to establish the fact that reckless driving must be adequately punished to eradicate it completely. It's simply unacceptable. Uh, I caution on the flip side, again, is knee reaction where we lower speed limits Uh, everywhere, ridiculously, I see like in many places now going down to 30 kilometers per hour, which simply people ignore. Um, Like a reasonable speed um, is known to be the 85th percentile speed, which means the speed that 85% of the people, reasonable people are comfortable at. So we should keep that in mind while setting the speed limit. However, having said that, some roads, because of the design features, Um, are inviting, inviting to speed up, as as, uh, the previous guest mentioned, if the road is wide um, and straight, then people just get the momentum and and don't feel the speed and end up speeding, in which cases we need to bring in selectively um, what I would call active speed reduction measures or self-enforcing roadways, meaning design the road in a way that people naturally would pick a speed that is not too high. Examples of this in the uh, present situation that we're discussing are narrowing the lanes as a possibility. Another possibility is the so-called horizontal deflection. Like Instead of having a straight stretch uh, all the way that invites people to speed, you introduce some islands that would make people zigzag a little bit to reduce speed. There's also the so-called vertical deflection, which is like raise the crosswalk or raise the intersection for for cars to slow down. But the simplest, in my opinion, and I, that I find effective, is rumble strips. If a, a spot is known uh, for overspeeding or for high accident rate, um, horizontal rumble strips uh, warn gives feedback to drivers and the shaking of the car makes them slow down. Dr.
1: Bahur Abdul-Hai is a professor at the University of Toronto and the director of Toronto Intelligent Transportation Systems Centre and Testbed tyranny anderson is co-founder of safe parkside and police constable sean shapiro is with toronto police traffic safety programs this is zoomer radio's best of fight back i'm jane brown now to the news fully vaccinated canadians will soon be able to drive over the border into the united states for non-essential travel When the land border to the U.S. reopens in November, it will have been 20 months since it was open for non-essential travel because of the pandemic. But there are still many unanswered questions. Libby was joined by a panel of experts to get some answers. Richard Smart, CEO of the Travel Industry Council of Ontario. Dr. Frederick Dimanche, Director, Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management. And Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure, Inc.
7: It's great news. We have to accept that because all I've had is calls for months and months and months. When will we be able to drive over the border? So we have our answer. We think we just don't know the day. We still do not have an answer on mixed vaccines. And I suspect we have the answer on the use of the World Health Organization drug list. So I think that all sounds good. And one other quick thing, it appears no negative COVID test is going to be required to be presented to go over the land border.
3: Right. But you're still going to need one to, to fly it.
7: Like this. Well, this is these two. And someone else may be able to answer this. These two things have got to get in sync one of these days, because right now you didn't have to be fully vaccinated either by air. So the AZ was not here nor there. So ultimately, when they open the land border, are they going to follow the same rules at the air border, per se? And are they going to request now no negative COVID tests, but show proof of being fully vaccinated? That's where we're at.
3: That's where we're at, and we're waiting for the answers. Uh, let's bring in Richard Smart. Hello, Richard.
7: Hi, Libby. How are you?
3: Fine. Still, are there pitfalls that people have to be worried about?
2: I'm. Uh, I'm in agreement with uh, with Marty. We're uh, we're very pleased to see the borders are uh, finally reopening. I guess I would use the words cautiously optimistic, and the other analogy that the devil's in the detail. Um, We've yet to uh, receive the the detailed uh, requirements and what the rules and protocols are from Homeland Security. Uh, So aside from the date, um, the sort of uh, document, if if there's any special documentation requirement um, around the the, the vaccination status, are they going to accept the QR codes as as a paper, exactly what that's going to look like. But, hey, I mean, we know the travel sector as a whole has been devastated these last 18 or 19 months. So this is great news for consumers and business travelers. Uh, we would just like to see a little bit more detail behind uh, what what the rules and protocols are, including the the COVID testing uh, coming back into the country. Uh,
3: Well, that's on our end. Uh, And uh, you mentioned the QR codes, and I guess we are here in Ontario supposed to get our QR codes instead of our little pieces of paper at the end of this month. But, uh, Dr. Dimanche, do you foresee a hassle that, you know, Canadians have... uh, 10 or 12 different kinds of proof of vaccination.
4: It's definitely
7: going to be a barrier to travel. You know, the lack of consistency, not just internationally, but also across the country and across the provinces. So um, I I would certainly recommend the federal government to, to think about this and to work towards a solution that would fit every single Canadian traveler in the same way. That would be so helpful in the same way the EU has been able to do it there is no reason why Canada would not be able to do that.
3: Well, the the EU did it uh, months and months ago. Uh, Canada, I mean, didn't didn't Dominic LeBlanc just say that it's going to be a long time before the federal government has its act together on that note? It's
7: it yes, they they say it would be a long time, and to me that's really puzzling because <laughs> it's not like this is a brand new thing. You know, that's something that should have been planned a long time ago. As you said, the European put this into place in June already. You know. I'm wondering why we haven't learned from that or or planned for this earlier. Uh,
3: You know, I'm wondering, Marty, because sometimes when you are crossing the border, it kind of just depends on who you get.
7: You don't know what you're getting, and that was part of the reason why I think the U.S. was hesitant to open up the land border. They enjoyed the airlines being the gatekeeper of allowing people in or not allowing them, and it wasn't on their shoulders or or their border officials. So that was one thought as to why this has taken so long. But one other note I would make, I'm not even sure you got to show a QR code or anything at that land border crossing. Evidently, they're talking about an attestation that basically I have been double vaccinated. You could be asked to show proof, but this is what's going to be interesting. If that's all you're doing is saying I was double vaccinated and you don't have to show a negative COVID test, we should move through pretty quick in that respect.
1: Libby's conversation on Thursday with our panel of travel experts, Richard Smart, CEO of the Travel Industry Council of Ontario, Dr. Frederick Dimash, Director Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management, and Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Brian in Toronto phoned about the shocking percentage of repeat offenders who speed on city streets, as was revealed this week in data from the city of Toronto.
4: I'm a little bit militant in my thoughts here in that I think that what we really need to do is we need to have some more severe penalties for repeat offenders. I mean, we all used to be that the speed limit on most streets was 60. Now it's 50. And I was only brought aware of that by being pulled over because I was doing 60 kilometers an hour in what used to be a 60 kilometer zone. So now I do 50. But if someone like a repeat offender 12 times being fined from the same intersection, they need to do something significantly more severe than a simple fine because obviously it's not working.
0: And now Fight Backs Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Bill in Toronto, who thought it was unfair that sports venues and theaters were allowed to reopen to full capacity before restaurants.
4: It seems that the government's pretty cozy with big business. You know,
5: Costco didn't get affected, Walmart really didn't get affected, and they just keep going after small business. And quite frankly... I've gotten so used to not going out to dinner or not going out to a bar. You know, I've become a bit of a chef now. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm, I'm quite content to stay at home. So it's the double whammy. Even if they open these things wide up, I don't know whether people are going to come back in droves. But the government can let 16,000 into the ACC center and they can't open restaurants.
1: That does it for this week's best of fight back on Zoomer radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightback Libby and call our fight back voicemail anytime at 416. Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zee Padi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer.